This is the commercial property show, Australia. Show number 39. I relocated myself, my wife, three children under five to go to Melbourne for 12 months. So it was not a small undertaking and I did it in a heartbeat and I would do it again in a heartbeat. If you have something you want to achieve and you know the skills and the knowledge you need to get to achieve those aims, I would encourage all young people to take that attitude. Just go and do it. What is happening commercial property community? Thank you so much for joining me on this sunny day. My name is Andrew Bean. I am the creator of the Commercial Property Show Australia, and we have a killer show for you today. So good. Couple of big announcements and a few updates, and here it is. In today's show, Brian Sullivan, expert syndicator, shares the secrets that he's learned over the years investing in the WA market. He gives us tips on the WA market, and there's just so many great takeaways and life lessons that he shares. He's also a childcare investor. There's a few cool little tips about investing in childcare, the lingo they use. It's just a really, really great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. But first, a self-storage update. I'm still looking to acquire a self-storage facility, but I've been unsuccessful so far. So if any listeners out there have a self-storage facility that they want to sell or they know of one that's a good deal and they want to pass it on to me, please do. I am doing a lot of work in the background to try and find a suitable asset. Um, So if you have one, please let me know. And now, the big announcement. In a couple of months, I am going to be launching a platform called CP Data, Commercial Property Data. This is going to be a platform where anyone can become a local market expert in an instant using the data that I've been collecting since last year. So it's going to be so amazing. It's going to change the game totally for commercial property investors. We've got over 80 markets tracked that you're going to be able to look at. This basically can change the whole game. It can expand your horizons to where you feel comfortable investing. You're going to be able to look at a market that you've never even seen and you're going to be able to see cap rate information, rate per square meter information. You're going to be able to see vacancy rate, transactions in the area, how many for lease in the area, trending data on all these stats, job information. It's going to be a complete one-stop shop. Everything you need to know about a market, you're going to be more knowledgeable than the boots on the ground agents in that location just from looking at this data. So it's really, really exciting. I'm really pumped to bring this to market. It's going to be amazing. If you want to check it out now and receive notifications about this platform, you can already check out the landing page. If you want to go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au, leave your email address and you'll be one of the first people to know about it when it becomes available. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. This is going to totally change the game for us. It's going to be amazing. 
Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Show Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Today's guest is the Managing Director of Sullivan Property. It's Brian Sullivan. How are you, mate? Good, thank you, Andrew. I'm well. How are you? Fantastic, buddy. So, mate, can you just tell us a little bit about your property background? Oh, okay. Look, I've been in commercial all my life. I started here in Perth in the mid-80s, working for a firm predominantly in the retail field, qualified as a manager, did a bit of sales and leasing, then obtained a valuation degree and qualifications there. From there, I moved over to Melbourne, actually, following an interest in property syndication working for a gentleman called Julius Coleman for a short period of time, returning back to Perth to continue that field of interest in property syndication, commercial property management, and generally that area. So that's where I've predominantly spent my working life. Oh, that's great. So you actually relocated just to get knowledgeable about doing syndications? Yeah, been in the industry since the mid-80s. So I've been in industry for about a decade or close to. I was at that stage associate director of a commercial property management firm. I was handling the investment sales of the larger shopping centres and the larger commercial properties together with overseeing from a asset management point of view some portfolios for various clients. I had some experience with a very early stage people putting together people to buy properties in syndicates through that process and I could see a gentleman and was working with a gentleman called Julius Coleman who I felt was doing it exceptionally well and so I took a 12-month contract with him to go over there and work with him and help him out with what he was doing but from my point of view it was very much to move into this area that I thought was a growth area and it really interested me the whole concept of being able to invest in quite a unique and specialised property category and do it as a relatively small investor was something I just thought was the logical way to progress my career. I really love that, how you were happy just to relocate to get the skills. Did you actually take a pay cut to go there as well? Like, what, or was oh, it, look, was I, it... um, I relocated myself, my wife and three children under five to go to Melbourne for 12 months. So it was not a small undertaking and I did it in a heartbeat and I would do it again in a heartbeat. If you have something you want to achieve and you know the skills and the knowledge you need to get to achieve those aims, I would encourage all young people to take that attitude. Just go and do it. I'd never regret that. And that was probably one of the best steps I took in my career was to go and to gain that experience at quite a high level in a reasonably senior position with a company that was progressive and doing things. You know, they became MCS property. They later got swallowed up by Centro. But that experience at that grassroots level at that early stage was invaluable. 
Yeah, Robert Kiyosaki actually always says, never take a job for the money. You always take a job for the experience and what you'll get out of it. I think that's very good advice. So, mate, just out of curiosity, what was the information like around that time around syndications and property? I guess there wouldn't have been much around, would there? No, no, it was very early stages. You had some fairly entrepreneurial people putting together property syndicates, and that's all. It's not a new thing. It's not something that's just evolved. But at that stage, it was becoming more formalized, if you like, more regimented. And there were some cowboys in those early days that perhaps did it as an industry a disservice but as it became more of an industry i think we've got better some would argue we haven't but i hope we have got better and now it's much more acceptable but at that early stage there was very few people doing it well and so i just gravitated to somebody who i identify as doing it very well and made a beeline to get the best experience i could yeah i love that so mate your kind of uh, boots on the ground WA market right now, what are you seeing in that marketplace? And we are very boots on the ground, very WA based. We see a fair bit of what goes on around the rest of Australia. But over here, from my level with what I'm working on, we actually have a relatively buoyant economy, or we have for certainly in the last, since we came out of the COVID lockdown, everybody was very nervous about it, but we have recovered very, very quickly in certain sectors, certainly not all, and you feel for those sectors that were decimated, but in most sectors, I'd say, we have rebounded quite quickly and we are seeing people take action, make decisions, and be quite positive in those decisions. So it's been, on many levels, quite a buoyant market. Which sectors would you say have been most affected by COVID? You said they were decimated. Look, uh, the central city in Perth, particularly in the retail, a fairly difficult segment. Not only the effect of COVID on businesses, but the fact that businesses now are not staffing their offices in the same manner has meant a substantial reduction in the number of people in the city and the number of people in the city substantially affects those retailers in the city. And I do really feel for those guys. And that's been an area where you've clearly seen effects and increased vacancy. The office market itself over here still has a substantial vacancy component. Secondary assets in those categories are also particularly affected. And then you have varying industries that are more affected than others. So I really feel for guys, travel agents, guys who've run gyms, those sorts of usages certainly had been affected through this process, which is not unusual or I think we all understand that basically. Yeah, it's really sad for like your gym kind of assets where they were kind of like gold before COVID. That was a really good asset to invest in. And then it's just all flipped on its head now. Look, true. Over here, they have recovered quickly though. They have really recovered and their turnovers have gone, because I have a few of them who I'm quite close to and speak with, their turnover levels have actually improved to levels above where they were pre-COVID. So that's really pleasing for them. So I'm hopeful that the rest of the country will experience the same thing. But you also feel for guys in our entertainment areas, perhaps the entertainment venues, they haven't perhaps enjoyed the same recovery or swift recovery that some areas have. And they've really done it quite tough, particularly with limits on their ability and patron levels too so they're the sort of categories that i think have been most decimated and we hope they recover very quickly yeah i definitely think it definitely needs a little bit more time doesn't it but like with the gym type asset previously to covid that was a no-brainer but now in especially places like hot areas like sydney and melbourne people are probably a little bit skeptical about is there going to be another lockdown 
that's going to put this gym out of commission for a while. Yeah, I can see that that would certainly affect them substantially, particularly in those areas. Yeah. It hasn't quite been as bad here because I think the customer has had the confidence to go back to those facilities and those users because we haven't had a myriad of lockdowns. We, mm. we had one and then we've had one more recently, but it was only for a very short period of time. So the level of confidence from the customer believing that the facility will continue to provide the service isn't perhaps as bad as in other parts of the country. So that's a positive for them here, but certainly when closing them down is never good. And I do feel for the operators substantially. Yeah, and fitness will always be a part of human society, but we can't do it at the moment. Funnily enough, we do agree with you. And when we look at our assets, particularly in our bulk of goods assets, we're looking to try to reposition a number of those assets to be more lifestyle based mm. and having a decent facility that provides people with that call it a gym lifestyle based usage i think it's very important to those properties and we make sure that each property we have in the showroom area does have that sort of facility available despite the effects of COVID. as long as it's not your largest income source or your only income source i think it's got a very viable future and should have a part of any large format retail property. So, mate, what kind of assets are really in demand over there right now? Look, it's probably the same across the country. Things that are perceived as being secure are very much in demand. And I say perceived because sometimes it is perceived as being secure rather necessarily than a fact. And so if you have an asset which is fortunate to have a long-term lease, you know, generally speaking, those assets are well regarded. So we've seen Yields on child mining, yields on service stations fall quite dramatically. They reflected by a sentiment that very secure asset as to whether they prove to be, it's that, that's another thing. But there's certainly the buy sentiment that they're secure and therefore they're very, very much in demand. So, and so like with the industrial sector over there, have the cap rates contracted significantly like across the rest of Australia? Yes, they have. We have had a substantial contraction in capitalisation rates in the industrial area, again, predominantly because the industrial properties are, generally speaking, on longer leases. And so there has been a contraction there. And anything that is well leased in that industrial area could achieve yields in the 5% range, which was certainly unheard of through my experience over the journey. That's pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, I've been having a, a very good look over in WA right now because it is quite hot. And like some of the cap rates, I've seen them in the fives and they're not for like really amazing assets with really like long leases. They're just your standard kind of industrial warehouse with a two to three year lease and a tenant, not even an asset listed tenant. And they're still mid fives. It's quite interesting. Yep, you're right. We've sold out of our industrial holdings. So mm. taking a view on that sector at the moment, it might change, but that's been our view. It's been a little bit too hot for us. Yeah, it's kind of, you've got to take that contrarian approach where you, you'd be scared when others are greedy and, and greedy when others are scared. The way I've looked at it over the years is just to identify the sector where you believe there's a bit of growth. And, you know, we got to the stage with some of our industrial holdings where we couldn't make them stack up. You know, if we were to mm. buy the land, build the building, rent the thing out, it just did not make sense. And most industrial holdings, because they're single tenant related, you know, carry a risk with them. And that risk is that the tenant will vacate for reasons normally because they're getting too big or expanding and that vacancy factor in industrial has always been considerable it's nothing to have an industrial property vacant for 12 or 18 months 
So when you start factoring in these sorts of risks, you go, well, why is this industrial property a 5% yield and the shopping centre down the road a 6 mm. It just didn't make a lot of sense to us. So we changed our tact a bit, started buying more in the large format retail and more recently in the retail area where I'm more comfortable with where the yields are sitting and I'm more comfortable with the potential for growth in rents. Yeah, so I mean, what I'm hearing you saying is there is less risk in having more tenancies under one property, like under one umbrella. Precisely. I like to think about it as like this, like if you purchase a property and you only have one tenant, who is the next person in line to have to pay that mortgage? And if that's me, then that's a big problem. It's pretty simple. You're identifying where your risks are. You've put all your eggs into the one basket when you buy an industrial property. And that's why the syndication of an industrial property does make sense, because then you've got five or 10 people not putting all of their asset into the acquisition, and they can spread their risk over four or five industrial properties. That makes sense to me as an approach to that category. So that that was the early approach I had to the industrial sector. We were saying, well, we can buy five industrial properties. And we did. At one stage, we owned, I think, five or ten. And we spread our risk across those 10 because we were comfortable with the sector, we were comfortable with land values, we were comfortable with the rent values, and we were comfortable with the growth potential. So from 2000 until 2007, you know, the majority of the properties that I was involved in acquiring then were in that industrial sector. From more recently, 2010 onwards, and the sector didn't collapse by any shape, it's still booming, but I just was uncomfortable with where that sector sat in its comparison to other sectors. And our interest is more focused on in large format retail. We've bought a tavern, which was interesting. We've bought a shopping centre. Yeah, we're more on those areas of interest now. And so what about your multi-tenanted, like larger complex industrial, where you obviously have a couple of tenants to foot the bill if, if you lose one? In Perth, they're pretty rare. Okay. And across the board, when you're talking a, a large tenanted industrial property, unfortunately, you're normally talking about a level of tenant that is a pretty small sort of a tenant, and they're almost incubator-style tenancies before they go to a larger premises, and, and they in themselves carry substantial risk. There's not a lot of properties of that nature that would present themselves in Perth that I, in WA that I would look at. You're talking 200 square metre tenancies, 300 square metre industrial tenancies, you're you're talking quite small businesses that, by and large, are the sort of businesses that tend to go in and out. So your vacancy factors are probably a bit higher there. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. So, mate, what do you think the driving factor is behind you know, the market, the demand right now? We have surging confidence. We have a mining industry that's still doing well. We have consumer confidence, too, in the sense that we have an economy that's recovered. And so that in itself delivers people with certainly a lot more confidence than in other parts of Australia, unfortunately. And that's been positive. People are prepared to make positive decisions and move forward positively. So we've seen a take-up in our space across the board. Yeah, that's been pleasing. It's been interesting dealing with those incoming tenants as well. But they're not coming into a market also where rents have run astray. They're generally speaking able to negotiate reasonable terms for themselves. So. And how much do you think the interest rates that banks are willing to lend now plays a factor in it? In the investment decision, a large, yeah. a large factor. People are looking at the property and they're, they're saying, well, if we can buy this asset for 5 or 6%, we're taking out our loan at 
less than 2%, it's quite clear that for the percentage of the asset that is geared, there is positive gearing and it's quite considerable. So it makes substantial impact on your returns. The only thing I would caution an investor there is I don't think the majority of investors, smaller investors, really understand where rents should be and they don't necessarily understand what alternatives they have with their money in terms of the property market. So if you're buying on a 5 or a 6% yield, it doesn't take much of a movement out of that yield or a movement down on the rent, and you've made quite a substantial mistake. So that's probably the area of caution I would have to them. So, mate, do you know of any major tenants that are coming into the WA market? Yeah, look, we're dealing with a couple now coming across, opening in the large format area. Can't name them because I'm confidentiality clauses I've agreed to. But there are some movement there and there is some, I would expect, announcements to be made in the next three to six months. And they'll be positive things for WA. So with your business, you're a full-blown sales and leasing firm as well, aren't you? No. Oh, you're not? The only sales we tackle would be something we would be doing for an old-valued client. So if somebody has assets with us that I'm managing as a portfolio, I'll help and oversee a sales but I won't tackle it independently myself. I'm not a salesman. Um, And it kind of goes counter to what I'm about. I'm trying to buy well for people. I'm trying to improve our investor base. I'm trying to improve our own asset base. And you can't be all things to all people. So I understand how you need to go about achieving a sale and the best price, but I'm not going to try to sit there as the salesman. There are some people out there who do that very, very well, specialise in it, and I'm firmly of the view that you choose the right one, the right horse for the job. So with the properties that are for lease on your website, are they properties we, that are yeah, in your portfolio? Absolutely. They're properties that we have some ownership of, or oh, okay. the client that owns them is involved with our other assets. So we act as many of our clients have their own assets. We will act as property manager for those assets or asset manager, if you like. What we're trying to do is is act as an owner and act as an owner would. So we're not really out there trying to be an agent, if you like, or handle sales or leasing for assets that we don't have a financial interest in. We are very focused on our properties that we have a financial interest in or our clients who have been with us for 20 or 30 years that perhaps have invested in some of those assets along the way. So. Is that a totally separate business entity or is it just one and the same? Oh, look, it's one and the same, but it's structured that it could be split at a later date. And was that always part of the gameplay for the syndication business? Yeah, it was. Okay, excellent. So, mate, have you heard of any big players leaving WA? I must confess, no. That's not the case. It's simply that I'm not across the board at that level of people who are exiting in terms of, I assume we're talking about retail here. Yeah, I mean, big retailers, you know, things like that. Look, I'm not in the city in retail. Most of the guys that we're dealing with are looking to expand or I'm dealing with a few companies who are coming here. So um, I don't have anybody in my portfolio that's actually leaving that market. So Yeah, fair again. enough. So, mate, I mean, it's really nice to see WA really like coming back because it's been down in the dumps for so long because of mining. What's actually changed with mining? Like what's actually happening in an industry that's really made it rebound? they're more active they're starting to churn up again they're starting to do some i won't say exploration but there are some things happening in that area i'm not an expert in the mining industry i follow it only to the extent that it affects me and employment and western australian economy but certainly there's not many of us who wouldn't have 
a story of a young person who's found himself a job at an increased pay working on a mining industry or a family that's been positively affected by that. Most of the work now is coming from West Australian families as well, so there's perhaps less of an opportunity for flying from interstate now, so that's buoyant as well. So it just flows through and it flows through in the confidence and that's how it tends to affect us. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, how the even though it's taking away jobs from people that could be in the fly-in, fly-out model, that extra cash in the WA economy has to be good. It is. It's positive. And very privileged to sit here in this environment and be speaking on this manner when you know that others perhaps aren't in the same boat, but it, it is what it is. We're experiencing, certainly my office and my company and the people that I'm dealing with are experiencing more buoyant conditions than we were previously. Yes, yeah, right. So, mate, what opportunities in like commercial assets are you seeing right now? What are you really, really excited about? I'm a little bit excited about being able to pick up some of the convenience-based neighbourhood centres at 6% yields where you think you can do something with them. That excites me. We've picked one up. I was excited about the child care industry exploding the way it has. I see a future there. I do see that both major political parties support what that industry is about, and I do see that as an area of growth. Both of those two areas do excite me. To be honest, we're looking at potentially building a child mining centre for a tenant. We've just bought a small neighbourhood shopping centre we're going to refurbish. It's an opportunity to put something back as well as not just taking out. So I find it interesting that you have some, with this flight to security, that creates opportunities. It creates opportunities in properties which are still quality properties, but they might not have the long-term lease to a multi-listed company, but it still is an opportunity to get in there if you buy the right property that's well-located, going to provide the right venue for the right business. That in itself is your security. You said child mining, and I actually, I think you meant, like, I heard yeah. it as mining as in the mining industry. Yeah. You meant minding, didn't you? Mining, I did, and I do <laughs> apologise if my accent is a bit broad, but... I did mean minding, and I think that's actually an inappropriate word. I'm sure it's early education, but I do see that as a growth area for the right reasons. We need yeah. to provide quality early education for our children. We don't do it as well as what we should as a society. We're now starting to do it better. It has support from both major political parties. There are some very good operators out there doing it well for all the right reasons. It's an investment of interest. I've been studying commercial property for quite a long time. You always kind of read to steer away from the single-use type properties. like, And it was the, the old adage, well, whatever goes vacant, you know, what are you going to do with it? But now that I have young kids of my own, I've got one child and one on the way, we're putting our children in daycare and they're always full. There's never, ever a time where there's vacancies in any of these. And there's also a waiting list for a lot of these daycare centres. I don't know if there's really a worry about it ever going vacant if it's in a well-located area. That's very valid and very true. And we are, I think I looked at 20 child early education centres that we looked at. And of the 20, we discounted 18, focused in on two and bought one of the two. And so, yes, issues of specialisation are important and they need to be considered. But if you buy a well-located property with a location that could be converted to other usages and a building that 
potentially could be converted to other usages, other commercial usages. That's how we have gone about to understand that risk and to deal with that risk. It still exists, but we've just tried to deal with it that way. And we preferred those centres over perhaps the centre that's only other use was as a residential house, because I could see that as having a greater risk profile. So that's how we dealt with it. So the risk is real, but the asset itself and the asset class is also performing. If you spread your risk across that and a couple of other assets, we think we've bought a reasonably solid asset in the category, and we think the next site that we're developing is quite a good one. So going into an asset like that, how do you identify how you can add value to a childcare? Like, is that a play that you would have, strategy that you would have in that type of asset, or is it more of a buy and hold? It's more typically a buy and hold, but having said that, the one we bought to hold has 500 square metres of excess land. So simply identified that as having the 500 square metres of excess land, worked out what I could do with the 500 of land when the time's right, and we bought it at a 6.25% yield at the time. So my hold is the fixed income growth. My growth is that its rental income is was priced at 2,700 a child. Most are now leasing for three and a half and above per child. And the 500 square metres of excess land gives us a little bit of development capacity. So we still looked for something that had something that we could get a little bit more than your average growth. It doesn't matter what asset you buy, you manage intensively and you try to add value. Yes, it's more passive. Properties, commercial property is never completely passive. You need to know the answers to those questions when you buy, not after you bought it. So as a roundabout way of answering the question, yes, more passive, but we do, we don't buy anything completely passively. And when you said it was a dollar figure per child, is that how it's worked out? In, in yeah, the, rental? the rents on the early learning, quite interesting. Operators have really driven how they discuss with you their rent levels. And what's important to them is the rent that they pay per child, which is really quite interesting. So we in commercial property are quite used to talking on rates per square metre, and that's all relevant. But if you're talking to an early learning operator, they're talking about cost to them per child. And that's the language they talk in, and you need to understand it. And so, um, yeah, the lingo of it, I suppose, that's how you assess them. And that's one of the main ways you can compare them. So if one early learning centre has a rent of $2,700 a child and the next one has a rent of $4,000 a child, you need to be asking yourself why and how is that supportable and why is there that that, that amount of difference. Yeah, that's really interesting because then you could basically figure out an under-child rented property. Yeah, I personally always worked at rate per square metre on the building improvements. I don't think many people do that. If you actually look at the marketing publications that are put out, they rarely ever actually work it back to a rate per square metre. But I just, just so I can have a look at how that compares with other usages on the same site and the same sort of expectation. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one to have got involved with. But it took me six to 12 months of reviewing, of analysis before I actually bought childcare property. Perhaps I'm a little bit more cautious than most. I just believe you need to know your sector before you start investing in something, which is, as you put out, a little bit more specialised than the norm. Yeah, 100%. Doing your research is always a good thing. When you're looking at a childcare, who's responsible for the DA to increase the amount of occupancy, like is in the amount of children 
that can be at that daycare. And we're going through that now. We're working very closely with an operator on a vacant site and we'll be putting the development application in. And so it'll be worked through with us as to the land we've got available, how we can go about it and what that will work back to for the operator in terms of, of uh, children. And if you're picking up an already existing childcare, is there ever scope to revisit the DA on amount of children that can be per day there? Yeah, there can be actually. Normally that's done by the operator, but we've had one instance where exactly that was done. They reconfigured their improvements slightly, They how they were, the age groups they were handling slightly, their staffing level slightly, and they achieved an increase in the number of children they were allowed to have in the venue. That can be done. So that then that came back to you in rent and then also affected the value? Yes and no, to be honest. We've had a rent review on that particular facility and I sat down with the operator and we had regard for the fact that it was the operator in that case that made the improvement changes that did the work, but there wasn't there was an upswing for us as the owner and it certainly didn't hurt. So it was good. But it was a win win. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think I might do a whole podcast on the ins and outs of childcare, so that might be something for in future. It's a really interesting area. So, um, yeah, it's quite a complex, specialised area too. You need to know it. But, yeah, it's good. All right, mate. So can you explain, like, how you set up these syndications? Are they public or private? What's the whole process and how does it work? For me, what we do, we're quite a private firm, so we will identify an asset. We take that asset under control by an offer or an option, depending on the structure that we're working with. And we typically have, when it's a multi-tenanted property, normally kept the asset in its own independent unit trust. So once we've done our due diligence on the asset, if the asset then still makes sense to buy, it still sacks up, we haven't been sold a pup or the information provided to us is all accurate and it is what we thought it would be, we will then invest in that unit trust and we'll ask our clients to invest alongside us and we'll normally hold the asset for a fixed period of time. Generally speaking, with property of commercial nature, you're talking 10 years, and we'll normally provide a ability for the unit trust or the members to roll that syndicate for another five or 10 years, should they choose to at the end. But it's important, particularly when you're dealing with people who don't nest, you know, they're not, they're not family, they're all independent investors, that there is a date that they're going to get their money out by because these syndicates are illiquid. They don't have necessarily a market for the units themselves. We've now moved more to a situation where we've gone, well, if we're going to pick up single tenant assets, perhaps we should put those in a overriding unit trust and have three or four properties in the same trust so that we offer a little bit of diversity of income stream. Mm. The last syndicate we put together, unit trust we put together, did exactly that. We actually bought a tavern south of the river here in Perth. We then added a childcare, early learning centre to that same trust, and we've now added a shopping centre to that trust. So the whole idea of that unit trust was to say, look, rather than just have one asset with one income stream and one tenant, let's spread it and let's get a reasonable spread into the trust before we close it off, which we'll probably do now. And then we'll concentrate on on improving the value and income stream from that trust. The first two assets offer us relative security of income stream. The last asset, the shopping centre offers us the ability to improve rents, to redevelop and to grow. But they're all income producing properties. So that's how we've grown and that's how we've preferred to acquire. And with most property syndicates, even the single purpose unit trusts, most of the investors are 
investing in many. So they'll put 5% in one, 20% in the next one, and just vary their investment as suits themselves, as suits their strategy, and allows them to get their income from more than one source. Debt-wise, we don't structure, we do, there's no cross-guarantees in any unit trust. So one investor doesn't guarantee the performance of the other, nor does the investor guarantee the performance of the trust itself. So the bank borrowings are kept to below 50% at levels that the bank are comfortable with that they can have a non-recourse facility. That was actually my next question is whether you're using 100% private finance or you're using a combination of private equity and then also bank finance. Look, debt finance is a an integral part of property investing. I, I think it makes sense to have some debt funding in anything you do. The level of that debt funding is where it varies according to the risk profile of the investors. But for me, good property investment has always and will always incorporate some level of debt. I think there's only two syndicates over the term that I've structured that didn't have any debt that were all private equity. And that was effectively because the investor base, the guys who were investing were very risk averse. And so that's fine. But most circumstances, good commercial property investing should have some level of debt to be leveraged. And these investments are as a private syndication, so it's less than 20 investors per trust or per property? We work by way of a information memorandum. We work under a financial services license, so trying to operate under the radar at all. We can have more than 30 investors, but we operate only with wholesale investors. That's the basis of my investor. We Most of my investors are investing 500000 or more. If they're investing less than that, they need a statement from their accountant confirming that they have sufficient assets. I think it's over 2.5 mil and income of over 250000 a year. So we're dealing with a particular type of investor, age of investor that has the capacity to invest 250, 500 or more. And you use the term there, a wholesale investor. Is that what that means? I would have yes. said that was a wholesale investor is somebody who has $250,000 of income per annum, or they have assets of $2.5 million or more. In most simplistic terms, you're trying to deal with somebody who, who has the understanding of the investment they're making. Yeah, we operate that way. It means we're properly licensed. Um, we operate under a financial services license. And everything is very vanilla, very cut and dried, and, and very, very see-through. We don't try to be anything we're not or we'll be too clever. <laughs> it's quite expensive, isn't it, to set that up? Yeah, look, it can be. Again, we don't try to do anything too clever. Our information memorandums are, they're certainly not glossy documents. They're simply setting out to our investors the key things they need to know, the key risk profiles of what we're investing in. So I put in there everything I would want to know if I was investing in this property. I don't take the attitude that, they're supposed to be a glossy selling document. They're not. They're actually supposed to point out to the investor, hey, guys, these are the risks. This is your profile. And this is what your investment is likely to do with no gloss promises. So they take a bit. I do them myself. I normally work with a solicitor on the legal side. But the essential information in there is, is very much akin to a property report or even a valuation report if somebody's familiar with those. And how do you advertise? Do you get the investor first and then find the deal or find the investor first and then offer the deal? No, look, I'm very much structured that I, I find the asset that I want to buy and then I buy it. And if you want to join me in that acquisition, please do. Simple as that. In terms of do I advertise? No, I don't. Doesn't mean I won't, but I haven't advertised. Probably something I don't do well, which is market. But 
we've dealt with such a, a close group of people for such a long time that we've just haven't felt the need to. And that was, I suppose, intentional. I run a pretty tight ship. I run a communication which is based on you can contact me when you want to. I'm not about trying to have 100 investors on a particular unit trust that I'm trying to deal with or people that I don't know well. So no, we don't market to. To be honest, it doesn't mean to say we don't accept new investors. It just means we just haven't had the need to leave our core investors to buy our assets. And so what type of turn would like an average return for one of these trusts would be to an investor? Okay, well, the most recent unit trust that I, I put out there, which is the bought the tavern, the early learning center, and now more recently, the shopping center. You know, we're trying to generate a 7% return per annum, which we pay quarterly, and I'm pretty confident we will. And then we're hoping for capital growth of 3 to 4% per annum on top of that so that we can obtain internal rates of return above 10%. That's what we're trying to achieve. We like to try to set targets that we can achieve and, and are achievable and not promise things that are blue sky. Will we achieve that? I'm pretty confident we will, but we won't know for a while. So that's brand new. In the last one I sold, which was an industrial property in Wangara, Printable Drive Wangara here, I think we averaged 21% per annum over an 18-year period. And that's really important. The investors held that asset for a very long time. They enjoyed considerable rental income from an industrial property over a considerable period of time. They had an 18-month vacancy at the end before they sold it. But their returns were quite considerable because they compounded. Most of the assets that I look after at the moment are experiencing plus 10% per annum internal rates of return. Two of them were returning cash returns of 10 and 15% per annum, and the other one we're returning 7.5% per annum. So it varies. There's no guarantee, but now and again, you get things right. So internal rate of return, can you just try and simplify that and explain what that is to the average investor? So from property, you're buying an asset which you hope will show you capital growth. So your internal rate of return is simply your combination of your income and your capital growth. So we're always trying to buy assets which will show a good, stable, secure income stream. If I can buy an asset where I can show that stable income stream at 6% or better and pay that out on a quarterly basis, well done. Well, I think that's really an outstanding result in the current environment. And then if you can add your capital value, which is only realized on sale, to that, you hope to then obtain an internal rate of return, a combination of capital and income over the period that you've owned that. And we're aiming for 10 to 12%, depending on the asset class and risk profile. So mate, if you're starting out in this business, you want to become a syndicator, what would piece of advice would you give someone, a fresh player? Yeah, that's interesting, Andrew. I get a lot of people in here wanting to jump into the syndication as a business. I I don't think a lot of people realise what's actually involved with that and being able to do that. I think you need a very, very solid basis and background as an agent, as an agent's capacity, so you understand the transactional side of the business. I think you'd need a very, very solid understanding and background the property management side of the business because if you do not understand what makes those wheels turn and what motivates your occupants and how they're driven, 
you won't ever be able to take that next step. I think you need a very sound valuation background. You need to be quite analytical because you need to look at assets and make decisions on assets as to what's a fair rent, what's a fair value. But more importantly, you need to be able to make decisions on where do you want your capital invested. So you need a fairly substantial background of knowledge in property. And if you can add to that a good understanding of economics, of other businesses, of how they run, then you're going to be able to maybe make a start. And from there, I would suggest working with one of the the larger players and understanding processes before you would ever consider going to the expense of setting up a business that specialises in this area. Um, And too many of them do it and concentrate their income on each new trust they put together or taking profit out of capital gain from the investors. And I see that and I say to an investor, well, why are you investing in a vehicle that is really purely a vehicle fundamentally for the syndicator to make money? The vehicle should be set up for you, the investor, to make money, not for the syndicator to take his management fee, which he hides by calling it a percentage of capital instead of a percentage of income, or a performance fee, which, to be perfectly honest, is just a free carry. You see a performance fee on a property syndicate, I see free carry to syndicate manager. That's my translation of those things. For me, they've got the vehicles have to be set up so that the investor is the one carrying the risk. He's the one who needs to get the return in his pocket, or else why should he carry the risk? It's, it's more difficult than what people perceive. I think a lot of people fail to put themselves in the shoes of the investor and say, well, why would somebody invest with me? For what reason? And if they can do that and genuinely believe they will provide something that others don't or they'll provide it better, then go for it. So, mate, are there any takeaways that you've had over your career that maybe if you could go back in time, you'd tell yourself at the start or you'd do anything differently? No, absolutely. I, I don't know too many people who get to my age who, uh, who wouldn't do some things differently or perhaps if they say they wouldn't, they're lying. But that having been said, I think I've made some really good decisions over the journey and some of the better decisions have always been the decisions to go for it. For the right reasons. So when it's your career, have a look at people around you that you admire. Have a look at people around you who are successful. I'm not talking about successful monetarily wise. Have a look at the people around you that that are valuable people to the community and people who are genuinely doing the right thing. And normally they're successful people. It's not a mutually exclusive provision that you be a good person and be successful. You, You can do both. And have a look at what they've done. Don't copy them. Take heed of what they've done and how they got there. And perhaps then plot your journey accordingly and do it early and be serious and committed to it and work hard young. And that would be my advice to any young person entering the industry. I think qualifications are important and get those qualifications early. That would be my advice. And those are the things I've done well, but probably along those lines, getting the qualifications early, working hard, paying attention to what successful people around me did and how they conducted themselves and trying at all times to Put the other person's interests first. And if you can do that, at least you'll leave your work environment feeling comfortable and confident that you've been an honest person, you've worked hard, and you've helped people along the way, and hopefully you've been successful. It's my take on life. Fantastic advice, mate. Well, today's been absolutely amazing chatting with you. Where can the listeners go to find uh, out more about your business and yourself? We do have a website. I won't say it's the most modern, but sullivanproperty.net.au. They're most welcome to give us a call at, at our office, and that's 08 9438 1599, 
or they can just look me up and ring me on my mobile. Not that hard. Well, told I'm hard to contact, but I promise I'll return all calls. Perfect, mate. Today's guest has been Brian Sullivan. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you. That's right, in this segment, I'm going to share the property data that I collect each month. I'm going to choose one location, good or bad, to give you guys a true reflection of what the numbers are saying about that location. All right, this week's location is Bunbury. Yes, we're going to stay in WA. And now, a lot of people might not know anything about this location, but jumping into the data, I can already see that the industrial sector has the highest vacancy in this location than any other sector. So it's really interesting to be able to find that out straight away from the data that I've collected. I've been collecting data on this location for the last six months. There's been six properties sold and 11 new leases written. Stock on hand is still quite low in the industrial sector uh, at 3.7%. But like, it's just really interesting that industrial property is pretty much well regarded around all of Australia right now. But you know, in this location, it has the highest vacancy out of all the sectors. Moving on to the office sector, there's been eight properties sold and 21 new leases written. That's actually double any other sector. The vacancy in the office sector is still reasonably high at 22%. Stock on hand is still low though at 7.1%. All right, moving on to the retail sector. There's been three properties sold in the retail sector in the last six months and nine new leases written. Vacancy is still about 21%. Stock on hand is 4.9%. The retail sector in this market has the lowest vacancy. So that's really interesting stuff to know. Okay, moving on to jobs, employment data. So there's a lot of jobs listed for this area. There's 496 jobs listed for this area currently, and that's been going up and up and up in the last four months. I only have four months of employment data on this area. What's really interesting about this area is that 115 of the 496 listed jobs are high income jobs. So that's really, really interesting to know as well. And another thing that I look at is population data. So back in 2011, this location had 66,000 people in population there. Today, it has 85,000 people living there. So it's had steady growth over the last 10 years. And that's what you want to know. You want to be looking at that. You want to know exactly what's happening. And this is where CP data is going to change the game for us. So if you do want to check out the platform that I'm creating, go to www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. And that's this week's Data Don't Lie location. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you'd like to follow the show on other platforms, we're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much to Brian Sullivan for the interview. Amazing takeaways. Really great guy. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music. 
and remember. In the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.